welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, did you like it the other day when you tweeted something and then I just stole your idea and wrote about it in a newsletter? <laughs> I wasn't actually trying to insinuate that, Joe. I just thought it was funny. I thought it was a mind meld from like 3,000 miles away. I'm not that arrogant that I would have assumed that you had actually read my tweet, given that I think I tweeted it at like midnight your time in New York. I do miss a lot of your uh, tweets because we're on such different time zones. But for those who are listening and don't uh, know the context behind it, there was a very interesting story in the crypto world this week where um, a major exchange, uh, a major crypto exchange called Binance, they delisted a coin causing the price of that coin to fall. And it raises all kinds of questions about who really holds power in the crypto world and questions about decentralization and centralized because how decentralized can any anything be if one exchange can come along and say, no, we're not trading you anymore, and then the uh, price plummets. Anyway, Tracy tweeted about this conundrum. I had written about it in a newsletter, and I swear I, didn't, I hadn't seen Tracy's tweet, but she <laughs> called me out for uh, stealing her ideas. No, I didn't call you out. I complimented oh, you okay. on uh, having the exact same idea as me. No, look, I, I think the reason why I was actually thinking about it was because it reminded me of an old Odd Lots episode. And I think it was actually the episode where you were talking about your experience inventing a cryptocurrency and what you learned from that whole uh, saga, I guess. And one of the things that you pointed out then was you thought one of the reasons that the cryptocurrency didn't actually take off was because it didn't get picked up by any major exchanges. And without exchange participation, you couldn't have pricing transparency and, and no one could really get on board with it. So over and over and over again, I think we've really seen the importance of exchanges when it comes to crypto. For what it's worth, my uh, cryptocurrency that I started with a friend several years ago failed for many more reasons uh, than just that. Many more including the fact that we never really took the project that seriously to begin with, and it was kind of a joke. Nonetheless, that was one of uh, numerous issues that we faced. Anyway, the power of exchanges is just one of, obviously, many interesting questions that arise in market structure. And we've been talking a lot about market structure on the show uh, recently. We recently did one about uh, bond market structure. Obviously, crypto market structure, just like crypto itself, in its very early days, nonetheless, people are trying to figure out what it's going to look like. So I think this should be an uh, interesting conversation today because we are going to be talking to someone in that field who's uh, trying to figure out and maybe we'll learn something about where the structure, how market structure works today and then ultimately where it's going in the space. All right. I'm intrigued. Who do we have? Today, we're going to be talking to Alex Gordon Brander. He's the founder of Omega One. He's formerly of Bridgewater. He's building a dark pool for crypto. So, Alex, thank you very much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me here today. What is Omega One and how did you decide to launch it or what did you see as the opportunity? So Omega One, uh, our first offering is Omega Dark, which is a regulated institutional dark pool for digital assets. So let me just break that down. Digital assets, meaning initially crypto and Bitcoin, but we also have our eye on the future where we see stocks, bonds, real estate and currencies all moving over into this digital environment. 
dark pool we can talk a bit more about for your listeners that don't know, but is a particular kind of uh, market microstructure or trading venue that allows large orders to be placed in volatile markets without moving the markets and brings stability to marketplaces. And then regulated, obviously, we'll talk about what that means. So how did I come about uh, doing this? So when I was at Bridgewater, I had the job of figuring out how to build a next generation trading platform that allowed very, very large volumes of um, FX to get traded in a way that didn't push the market around. When I started first really getting deep into crypto in sort of 2016, 2017, and made small little trades of a few thousand dollars on exchanges, I was shocked to see the same kind of behavior that I was seeing when we were moving around billions of dollars in FX and realized that the market microstructures in crypto needed a lot of help to be able to build the kind of liquidity that was required to then have this sort of flow of money from the old world into the new. So that, that's what got me going. So, Alex, can you talk to us a, a little bit more about why the crypto market in its current uh, existence or its current form is actually illiquid? Because we hear all these stories about, you know, even small trades having an outsized impact on the market. But we also hear a lot about Bitcoin whales, people with big positions or who make big trades who are able to really, really move the market. Why is, does this seem to be such a problem in crypto? So I think there's probably three different causes or root causes behind that. One is simply immaturity that, um, you know, markets are ecosystems. And if you leave the ecosystem for a while, uh, different kinds of sort of herbivores and carnivores and different kinds of beasts enter the ecosystem and end up creating this sort of efficient landscape of trading. And in crypto, there just hasn't been that long for, you know, the agency brokers and market makers and OTC desks and all these to really develop the tight web of interrelationships right. that they have in other markets. So there's, a, there's an immaturity piece. There's also, I think, a more interesting thing, which is crypto as a market that started off in the retail world. And most of all the other asset classes that we know started institutional and moved retail. And this thing started retail and at a time when there's a really low barrier to entry for creating uh, exchanges and platforms that also never existed in previous asset classes. And you have a lot of people who made a bunch of money uh, from being early adopters who then had you know, the confidence to start up venues. So you have a very broad set of people coming from very different places entering in and becoming players in this market. Again, so that's just a, a different kind of starting point than in, than in traditional assets. And the third main thing is regulation and compliance, which is what causes a lot of harmonization in the other markets. So here's... Well, my initial thought, and obviously we can talk about Omega One and specifically how you're trying to solve this problem. But when I hear like about, OK, there's going to be a dark pool for crypto. My first thought is, is it this kind of premature? Because have we still even gotten to the stage where we know if institutions actually have any interest in this at all, let alone some sort of like sophisticated modern trading environment that we think is applicable to much bigger markets? I would turn that around and sure. say that a lot of the larger institutions that we talk to have 
great deal of interest in entering the markets and then are held back by the lack of regulatory compliant, secure and um, liquid solutions to trade on. So it's a little bit of a chicken egg problem here. It's also the case that although everyone says price action doesn't matter, you know, there are a lot of people who were pushing into the marketplace who at least probably held back on pushing their bosses and compliance departments for approval while the while the price was falling like a knife last yeah. year. And I feel like we've hit the floor and we're turning on that front. And that is going to make a difference to institutional interest because, you know, the institutions are primarily driven by the family offices and, you know, and asset owners who are seeing the price rises and now, again, wanting to get back into the asset class. So when I hear dark pool for crypto, I have a a slightly different initial reaction, which is if you think that one of the issues or one of the major criticisms of the crypto market as it exists right now is a lack of transparency, you know, people talk about the sort of murky world of crypto trading and various exchanges um, that possibly engage in uh, sort of sketchy practices, maybe order inflation, that sort of thing. And then you think about dark pools, which, you know, it's died down a little bit. But at one point a few years ago, dark pools had a a terrible reputation and and were sort of viewed, again, as these murky private exchanges where no one knew what was going on. And there was all this predatory pricing. Michael Lewis basically wrote an entire book about this. How are dark pools going to benefit the crypto market, given that one of the major criticisms has actually been a lack of transparency? That's a great question. And I think what we need to do to answer that is look at what is dark and what isn't. So there's, you know, it's it's a little bit cheesy, but we use the phrase we're bringing dark pools into the light because what we're actually doing is on the one hand, we're bringing dark pools into the crypto asset class. On the other hand, we're bringing some technologies from crypto and blockchain into dark pools that actually increase the transparency. So what we see in you know, the actual blockchain transactions are more transparent than anything else. We can all see what all of the Bitcoin right. transactions are. It's what's going on off chain in the sort of the murky world of the exchanges and bots, which agree is is you know, there are some real issues there. So we have uh, one major innovation that we have that no dark pool in equities has, which is that the pricing of access to liquidity on the dark pool is going to be mediated by a token that is public, clear and transparent. So Bart Chilton, who's one of our advisors, has been one of the guys who's railed against the sort of HFT dark pool alliances where, you know, there's these under the table contracts where high frequency trading firms get their own order types and essentially get to predate on other clients of the dark pools in a non-transparent way. All of our market microstructure is public, transparent, is going to be audited. Um, We're working on a big four audit contract. So actually the pricing, the mechanics, and then even the trades afterwards are going to be printed onto a blockchain. So we're bringing a lot of transparency in. So what's the dark part? So the dark part is if you right now want to buy $10 million of Bitcoin, yeah, and you announce that intention to the marketplace, you're going to have your face ripped off because you go and you put that on an order and put put that order on an exchange and just rest. Everyone's going to see that order and the price is going to move away from you. 
got to help you actually try to buy that $10 million of Bitcoin on the marketplace. You're going to eat up liquidity. That's going to move the market. Then all the bots are going to get freaked out. And by the time you've bought your $10 million, the price has moved like 5 7%. You've paid basically 3 or 4% in slippage costs. And the fact that you paid 10 basis points or 20 basis points in fees on the exchange, you're paying 80 times that much in terms of how much you're moving the market. So that's the key thing that a dark pool changes, is it allows you to put that $10 million order in in a discrete way, and it gets done at the market mid price, and every trade gets done at the mid rather than moving out. No, I mean, I mean you're, you're pausing because uh, people at home can't see it, but I'm making a weird, I'm making like a skeptical face. I'm just still trying to figure out how fundamentally the $10 million purchase of, let's say, it's Bitcoin, yeah. even if done on a dark pool or in a dark pool, doesn't have the same issue, run into the same issue of eating up the existing liquidity. Because in the end, you know, there's only so much people at any given moment are selling at X price, right? Right. Maybe this is a dumb question. I'm just no, like no, no, trying to is, like really like- If everyone is buying yeah. and nobody is selling. Right. A dark pool isn't going to magically create sellers. But if there are people who have buying intentions that they don't want to reveal because they're afraid they'll move the market away from them and people have selling intentions they don't want to reveal and they're both nibbling around the edges and we give an opportunity for them to meet because they know they're going to meet at the fair market mid-price, that enables both of them to come out. Now, if twice as many people are buying as are selling the price is still going to be moving up in the marketplace and you know the sellers are all going to get fed on on our side and the buyers are still going to be waiting for more sellers yeah um but it's a it still has a stabilizing action on the market compared to just putting that order on a lit exchange there's a key concept here which is when i say the mid price what do we mean by that yeah who's mid price so any dark pool needs to have a an external price reference set because it's not doing the price discovery with the lit orders. So, you know, where do we get that external price from? And that's a that's a really interesting question to dig into. Now, we've looked at what the top 50 exchanges, we looked yeah. at that Bitwise report about how much of the exchange volume was faked and that was roughly right. in line with our own analysis on this. So, when you look at the vast swath of lit exchanges, you say, where can we actually get a trustable price from? There's actually only a few of those lit exchanges that you know we feel are trustable for providing a mid-price. So what we're doing is actually um, working with a partner to get pricing from all of the OTC and the market maker desks. So we have a true price that represents the broad set of liquidity in the whole Bitcoin market. And once that price is clear and being sort of communicated out on the exchange and just inviting people to meet at that midpoint, that will have an anchoring or stabilizing Mm. effect on the overall marketplace. That's really interesting. Out of curiosity, how different is that sort of true mid-price to some of the prices being reported on the exchanges? Like how much of a gap is there between the two that you've seen so far? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. If you look at the equity dark pools, it's really simple. There's a national best bid, there's a national best offer, and the dark pool goes and mids between the two of those. And there's, you know, 
fiber optic pipes and microwaves wiring everything together and it's all clean. And in crypto, you can see $50, differences between the mid of the order books on um, some of these exchanges. And so you occasionally have definitely edge discrepancies with one or two exchanges that can be as much as 50 or 100 bucks from what is sort of the true weighted mid price. Those often don't tend to be really there if you try to trade those orders mm-hmm. or there's just kind of a few dollars there and everything fades. But it, the the data field, the market data field is much fuzzier in crypto than it is in FX or equities. So as you mentioned, um, and really with all kinds of networks, but uh, there's a chicken and egg problem with all this stuff. How do you, you know, ultimately you can have great technology, but if nobody shows up to your exchange, then there isn't going to be a whole lot of liquidity, even in the best scenarios. So how do you plan to solve that? Because there's a lot of people out there trying to work on the institutional aspect of crypto in one way or another, whether it's on custodial solutions or exchanges. And you have the legacy. It's funny to call them legacy, but, you know, the the legacy players like Coinbase, they're trying to make a big push into institutional trading. How do you plan? It can only it can only be so fragmented before right. there's no liquidity anywhere. Right. Someone or a few players have to really dominate so how do you convince uh, different entities, of which there still aren't very many, to coalesce around your platform? Number one, there's a, a minimum bar of the regulatory and security and all of those things that one needs to have to be entering into that conversation. Right. And once you actually really look at where that minimum bar is, you've cut yourself down to a handful of players, most of whom don't even have product out that can operate at that level. Okay. And then from that point onwards, there's two things, at least from how we look at it. One is we have a unique offering that is not actually competitive to the likes of a Coinbase or a Bact or an RSX or an LMAX. We're actually talking to those parties because each of them will have excess bid or offer liquidity and they they may have market making operations or OTC desks that uh, will want to have the opportunity to access mid-price liquidity through through our platform. So one, having a different offering that actually offers something to all of those players as well as to the end institutions. Two, by kind of being adults and professionals and that filters things down some, I I hate to say, although not as much as it used to. And then thirdly, and this is where it's a, it's a little bit more creative, we are we have a cryptocurrency token ourselves. Yeah. And that token is something that we've designed to um, build the network effects on the platform to reward people for early participation and to kind of price the access to liquidity on the platform. So, you know, this is something that... Um, the business isn't sort of built around it. A lot of crypto tokens yeah. rely on the token itself to create the network effects, right. but it's kind of an accelerant for those network effects. 
So Alex, I'm curious how you make decisions about which cryptocurrencies or assets to actually um, provide trading for on your platform. And this sort of touches a little bit on uh, Joe's totally original observation about uh, Bitcoin SV, this sort of offshoot of Bitcoin Cash um, that Binance decided to delist recently. You know, they said they weren't comfortable with the cryptocurrency for various reasons. And and again, I wonder, like, what sort of factors would go into your decision making process about which crypto or what type of crypto trading to provide? So the first thing is we're only going to be offering where there's already sufficient liquidity in the marketplace for our offering to make sense. So, you know, we're starting off with Bitcoin only when we launch and we're going to be doing probably not more than the top 10 cryptos for the foreseeable future. You know, we're not the folks who list 250, 300, 400 different coins. Secondly, the Bermuda Monetary Authority, and it's probably a good moment to just talk about Bermuda here. So the Bermuda Monetary Authority is, in our view, the leading jurisdiction for regulating digital assets. And they have a pretty clear framework for looking at what coins can be listed on a registered exchange. For instance, we're steering clear of privacy coins because that makes it very hard for us to do the AML KYC that we need to do. Right. You know, there are there are coins which have reputational issues that we've talked to the to the BMA about. Uh so where do you see this all going? And I you you mentioned at the beginning that you're gonna start with sort of what we know is cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and so on. But then you also mentioned like other types of assets that would be like traded as digital currencies. And I hear people talk about this stuff and the idea of like tokenizing equity or tokenizing bonds or real estate and being some sort of crypto token. And I still don't understand why that is an improvement or why that is a um, why that would represent an innovation. So I'm curious in your view, like what the roadmap for all this in terms of what actually is going to be traded in this way. So, yes, I do think that all asset classes are going to be traded on a blockchain as digital assets and that the efficiency gains of near immediate settlement and all of the interoperability of blockchains will make a difference. They're not making enough of a difference today to overwhelm the liquidity barriers yeah. and, and other issues. But no, but, but where's just, it going to go? Like, I, I just want to push back. Or my my when you say that these efficiency gains, because we've had several discussions with people, and one of the consistent themes when we talk about crypto currencies or blockchain, whatever, is that it's not efficient, that's actually highly inefficient, and that traditional databases are far faster, are far less computationally intensive, are far less energy intensive, and that blockchains are basically these very kludgy, costly systems that are good for a narrow purpose. So you, when you talk about efficiency gains and those efficiency gains driving more assets to be uh, traded in this manner, that's like the part I'm struggling to understand. So the efficiency is absolutely not that it's more computationally efficient than doing things in a centralized way. Yeah. The efficiency comes from the one thing that blockchains are good at, which is giving everybody around the world or everybody in the network the same picture of what's going on consistently and coherently across the whole network. So when you look at equity trading, for instance, the, the nanosecond level trading of equities 
is highly efficient. You're not going to replace that by making it be traded on a blockchain. Right. But the back end of that equity trading, there's still you know, stock certificates in DTCC. There are cases you see where companies have 105% proxies because nobody's adding up the, the shareholding of the companies. There's a huge amount of inefficiency in the layers underneath trading, which is why it still takes two or three days to even settle transactions, even though the, the trades are taking place in nanoseconds. So it's more in having a coherent global ledger of who owns what that everyone can trust, which especially in emerging markets where there isn't even good title to land and things. And, you know, there's a lot of the world's population who don't even have identity in the traditional way can make massive differences on that level. And then in the more sort of industrialized capital markets, it's about having clear common settlement layer and then building a new trade layer on top of that. Well, uh, Alex Gordon Brander, uh, really appreciate you coming on. Fascinating. And I'm really looking forward to watching where Omega One goes and just the general landscape, because obviously, like since the end of 2017, when the bubble peaked, there was like so much hype and enthusiasm about the institutional money coming in. And then 2018, the market flopped. And I'm still like sort of curious where it's all happening. So we'll see if it eventually arrives. Absolutely. I mean, it's... um... It's definitely different being a crypto company in winter than yeah. it was in summer. Uh, I think shoots of spring are coming through right now. And uh, the good news is it's cleared a lot of the noise and scammers and hucksters out of the space. And, you know, the strong survive. All right. Well, we'll have you back in a couple of years and we'll see how it all uh, developed. Uh, thank you very much. Perfect. Thank you. Tracy, I'm really enjoying all of the uh, market structure talk that we've been doing on uh, Oddly. <laughs> no, I'm serious. No, I, I am too. Uh, corporate bond market structure and now uh, crypto structure. It's great. I did think, I, I mean, it's slightly ironic, Alex's last point about green shoots coming through now. And, you know, one of the things that seems to have the crypto community feeling a bit better lately is the fact that Bitcoin has popped over $5,000 per coin once again. Uh, but the irony comes through that a lot of people are saying that that pop was actually because of one trade that probably moved the entire market. So the illiquidity in this one instance seems to actually have benefited the crypto market. Uh, and I keep thinking, you know, going back to my initial question to Alex, because still like, when I hear like dark pools for crypto, I'm like, God, this is such a new space. Like, isn't there still just an issue of anyone even like caring about this or being sure that this will be around? But I guess like ultimately it is a chicken and egg thing. And, you know, you can't have, uh, you know, institutions aren't going to be interested in entering the space unless there are good tools and the good tools won't be used unless there's actual int institutional interest. So someone's got to build the stuff. If you build it, they might come. I guess we only have to wait uh, they might come. <laughs> a couple years to find out. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And follow Alex on Twitter at Alex Omega One Project. 
And you should follow our producer on Twitter. He's Topher Forhez. He's at Forhez T. Uh, and I want to thank our new producer, who will be uh, taking over the reins, Laura Carlson. She's on Twitter, at Laura M. Carlson. And don't forget to follow Bloomberg's head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening.